Hey everybody, JC here, and welcome to another Sermon Extra. This week is coming after a message on 1 Kings chapter 2, where we saw how Solomon's kingdom is established. That was the theme of the chapter, that Solomon's kingdom is established through the wise exercise of just judgment. That is, we saw four examples of where Solomon, different in a different way each, punishes four different men for their treason and rebellion, for their slander and murder. And thus, the result is that his kingdom is established. And the theme was that the kingdom of peace is established through the wise exercise of just judgment. And the one main aspect of that we looked at was how um, sins and crimes, they create debts of justice. That is, people were not giving society or giving God or giving others what was owed. And that that debt is righted. The scales of justice are balanced when those um, crimes are punished. Now, that's just one aspect of the usefulness and need of judgment and punishment. And I want to look at um, two other aspects today. And I want to tie God's judgment particularly to God's law. And so we're going to look at what in Reformed theology we call the three uses of the law, which then ties to um, aspects of judgment. Um, and we will look at them all both as they relate to this world and as they relate to the world to, to come. So in Reformed theology, we consider that there are three uses of the law. Uh, the numbering and the terms people use for them are a little bit different each. So here's what I'm going to call them. I'm going to say there is the restraining use, the revealing use, and the reforming use. The restraining use, revealing use, and reforming use. Um, the restraining use is the use of the law in society to restrain evil. And in this way, peace is preserved, right? Societies without laws are chaotic and disordered. But when there's law, when crimes are punished, that helps preserve peace in society. And it's a help to human flourishing um, to restrain evil and preserve peace. That's the first use. The second use is the revealing use. And this is how the law shows us our guilt. Because we know we can't keep the law perfectly, we know we break it. And so especially before God, the law is used to reveal our sin and in that revelation of sin also reveal our need of the Savior. This is the second use of the law. And when the need for the Savior is revealed and that offer of salvation is received, then guilt is purged. So if the first one is for preserving peace in society, the restraining use, here the revealing use is supposed to lead us to the place where guilt can be purged in Christ. And the third use is what we can call the reforming use of the law. And the reforming use of the law is where the law then becomes our guide and shepherd to lead us in the paths of good. That is, it promotes good. And God teaches us how to be like Christ by giving us commands to obey, um, ways of life to follow after as we seek to be Christ's disciples. This is the reforming use of the law, which is used for promoting good. So the restraining use is for preserving peace, the revealing use is for purging guilt, and the reforming use 
is for promoting good. Now, I want to go through each of these in turn and give us just some more categories and some more ways to think of this, especially as it relates to judgment. And if you look at legal theory, it's generally considered that punishments um, can have about um, six different intended ends, those of retribution, deterrence, rehabilitation, incapacitation, reparation, and denunciation. And these actually relate to various aspects of the law. Okay, so first, let's look at the first use of the law, the restraining use by which peace is preserved in society. Now, this functions with judgment um, to have a denouncing effect. That is, laws show us what the moral standards are. And when people break them, the judgment, as it relates to the first use of this law, is a public denunciation that this type of behavior is unacceptable. This type of behavior goes against what we want in society. So it has a denouncing effect when judgment comes on those who break the law. Second, it's a deterrence. Right? We understand in society when people know they're going to be punished for something or know there's a severe fine for a certain type of behavior, they are less likely to indulge in it. So this first use of the law, this social civil use, helps deter people and so pre um, preserves the peace of society not only by denouncing wrongdoing but also deterring wrongdoing. And the third use it has here is that of incapacitation. That is, peace is preserved in society when those that pose continuing harms or continuing threats are neutralized. Um, they might be imprisoned, or sometimes in some countries, um, at times even here or in scripture, um, they're incapacitated through death. So usually that's death or imprisonment. And overall, we can consider this first social restraining use of the law, um, it's largely affected externally. That is, we see this in the world around us. It's a visible, it's a social reality. We see with our physical eyes when there is not peace in society, when we see violence, and when we see riotous behavior, when we see war and slanderous speech. This is visible and social, and this relates to all our relationships. So when the law is broken, when we're thinking of it through this first-use perspective, we're thinking of how it breaks human relationships. It severs human bonds. When we don't treat each other the way we um, each other deserves, it severs human relationships. And this one, and we'll see this with each of them, there is a now aspect and a not yet aspect. That is this world and the world to come. So now we are seeking a peaceful world and we want to see sin and crime restrained in society as much as possible. Even on a human level, apart from salvation, we would love to live in a world with less murdering, right? It does matter to God that unbelievers sin less and harm his creatures less. That's a social good. And so we want to be working for a world where there is less crime, where there's less injustice and less wrongdoing towards each other, less war, less hatred, less adultery, all these things. But the thing is, 
We know that because of sin, we will never achieve anything like a utopia in this world. There's always going to be sin. There's always going to be um, unpeace. But we're still called to work towards it as much as possible, right? As parents know that their children will never achieve perfection, but they want to see their household get to as high of a level as, of peace as possible, right? And if we're thinking of this, um, I'm maybe splitting too many things up here, but we can even think of these trinitarianly. And this first use of the law particularly relates to the father, how this is the father's world. And the father wants to see all his, all his image bearers um, be treated well, be treated with the nobility due to an image bearer of God. But we can see also the not yet aspect of this. And this is the promise that when Christ returns, all the disturbers of peace, every cause for disturbance of peace and love and flourishing in society will be put away with. That is, the wicked will be forever incapacitated. Um, the final denouncement on sin will be given as the wicked are judged. And um, we're told in 1 Corinthians 6, as well as in Galatians 5, all the types of people that will not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. It says neither adulterers or sexually immoral or idolaters and people like that. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, these have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. It says actually don't be deceived. None of these type of people will have any inheritance in the kingdom of God. In Revelation 21, 8, it tells us who those are that are outside the city of God. Um, all immoral, all liars. They do not have an inheritance in the final everlasting city because it's going to be a world, as Revelation again says, where righteousness dwells, where there is perfect peace. As Jonathan Edwards said, heaven will be a world of love. Christ will have removed every evildoer from the new world world and all the evil from our own hearts out of the world. And so this kingdom of peace that we're supposed to be working for now, we have hope that one day it will be brought into full flower and fruition. And Christ's peace and his reign will be fully and finally realized. So we're working to it now, knowing we'll never achieve it until Christ comes and makes all things right. This is all a ways to think of law in this first use, this restraining and social use. So secondly, we have the revealing use of the law, or what you might call the saving use of the law. And here we're considering principles of justice that we even see in our secular system, principles such as um, retribution and reparation. Now we can think of some crimes are paid for through retribution, that is kind of a straight up punishment, others through reparation or a repayment. Uh, we can think of in the Old Testament, laws for theft were dealt with by repayment. You had to repay what was stolen, and in some cases you would add a fifth onto it or a different amount on. So you repaid what was taken plus extra. Whereas other ones um, had physical punishment, corporal punishment, which is the idea of retribution. And the idea here is always that the punishment must fit the crime. And when the punishment is fitting for what the crime did, then it's considered that the scales of justice are righted. And this is dealing with the issue 
of guilt. Now, guilt is not a visible thing. And this is a difference from the first use of the law. We don't see the effects here with our visible eyes, right? We can see when peace is taken. We can see when someone is injured. But we cannot see when guilt has occurred because guilt is an invisible concept. Guilt is, is an idea, though it's a true idea. So that is, this is internal. It's invisible, which is why, in a sense, it's a spiritual use of the law. Because guilt implies sin. And guilt needs to be purged. All throughout the Old Testament, there is this language of, and thus the guilt will be purged. And so when we're thinking of this use of the law, we're thinking of it in sort of spiritual terms. And that's why it's under the revealing or saving use of the law. Because our breaking of the law, it reveals to us our sin and guilt before God. That we are defiled in and of ourselves and that we need our guilt to be purged. Because if we think of this in a now and in a not yet framework, all our sinful infractions can never be fully repaid in this life. We can't tally them or understand them and we can never uh, repay our guilt. We can never right the scales of injustice through our good works. And that's why at the final judgment, all the cries of injustice are going to be silenced as the guilty are punished and receive what is justly due for their sins. But this is how the second use of the law shows us our need of Christ. Because Christ came to receive the just judgment due to sin, to be an atoning sacrifice, to take away guilt, to be able to offer forgiveness, all those now who trust in Christ have their guilt dealt with in full. As, as Colossians 2 says, that handwriting of ordinances written against them is erased through Christ's work on the cross. So even though in total in the future at Christ's judgment, guilt will be purged in full, it can be purged in full now for the one who has faith in Christ. For all our sins, past, present, and future, if we trust and hope and pray to Christ for forgiveness, our guilt is purged in his death. And we can trust that his death dealt with our guilt for all time. So even though we never achieve perfect peace in society now, we can have perfect peace in our conscience before God because our guilt can be fully purged. And that saves us from the eternal punishment due to sin. And if we think Trinitarianly, this is the one that particularly relates to Christ. It's the work of Christ to be a sacrifice for sin, to be the Passover lamb, to be um, the one that propitiates the wrath of God, the one that as God can bear all sin, but as man can bear human sin, the second use of the law. But there's also the third use of the law, which I call the reforming use. And here the law is used for promoting good. 
Um, even in society, we do recognize that through discipline, we want to see criminals reformed. We want to see those that hurt relationships reconciled in those relationships. And this use, it brings together the internal and the external. It brings together the social and the spiritual. So if we think on a natural human level, yes, we want people to follow after laws in doing good, but our hearts are corrupted and we have a bent towards sin. So the beauty for the Christian is that, that the one who hopes in Christ, who Christ covers all his sins, Christ doesn't stop there. But an essential part of the gospel is that Christ also sends the spirit and the spirit regenerates the heart through Christ by the spirit, Believers can be reconciled to the Father, have that relationship um, come together. And there's also a restoration of the image of God in man that's defiled through the fall. Fallen man has the image of God, but it's been corrupted. And so the image of God is restored in man through the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit works to sanctify, to reform believers after the image of Christ. It's We are predestined, Romans 8.30 says, to be conformed to the image of the Son. And here, instead of being a negative thing, the law becomes a positive instructor, a shepherd and guide to lead us in the way of Jesus, to help us walk in the way of righteousness. And this only really becomes possible for believers. And here there is no more um, judgment to condemn because those four first two uses, they relate to everybody. Everyone wants to be in a safe society and everyone incurs guilt. But for the one who has faith in Christ, we can now be brought out of that judgment into this new way of life where we have a good teacher to follow and we get to walk in the path of Christ's commands, which really is the best way to live. And we're actually enabled to obey fully because our hearts have been recreated. Our hearts have been made willing to, to truly live for the glory of God, to truly live out of faith in Christ, to truly live according to his word. And so we have an opportunity to actually enjoy those paths of righteousness where all God's ways are wisdom and peace. And so this is the reforming use of the law. We want to be formed again and again to the image of Christ, knowing that our guilt um, has been dealt with. It's been purged. So now good can be promoted. And although we still deal with indwelling sin, we are being progressively sanctified. And we do look forward again to that day, that coming day, where all the corruption in our own hearts, all the sin in the flesh will be fully removed so that we can fully enjoy um, the goodness of Christ, the goodness of one another in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's what I wanted to talk to, about today, the three uses of the law in Reformed theology and how it relates when we think of judgment, right? There are good reasons why Christ judges. It's not out of a sense of personal pleasure or vindictiveness, but it's for the preservation of peace. It's for the purging of guilt and it's for the promotion of good.
and it is necessary, and we will rejoice in the goodness of Christ's judgments when we finally fully see and fully understand on that final day. We know that the judge of all the earth will do right, and for us, our great desire is that we want to see our sin judged in Christ because we will never be able to bear the judgment. As Christ said in that parable, um, you will never get out till you've paid the last penny. And we have a mountain of debt that we will never repay. But thank the Lord for the Savior Jesus who bore all that punishment that we could never take. And because of his great love for his people, brings us into reconciled relationship with God and restores us to walk in his ways. What a good Savior we have. Let's rejoice in that today and thank God that he's given us such a good way of life to follow and ask for strength by the Holy Spirit that we might walk in it.